Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Loveless Biomedical Podcast. Welcome. My name is Jake McDonald, and I'm moderating this week for the Loveless Biomedical Podcast. And this week, we're going to speak about a great topic. It's about inhaled delivery and targeting infectious disease. My guest speakers today are Megan Vermillion and Philip Keel. Is I saying that right, Phil? Uh, it's close enough. It, you know, it's been mispronounced for so many years. It's actually Phil Keel, but who cares? Oh, okay, great. You know, I've worked with you for over 10 years, so I figured, you know, we got to get this right. <laughs> it's about time we started doing this. I'll start with Megan. Megan, you are our director of comparative medicine. You've been here for a few years now. You moved from John Hopkins. What do you, what do you love about living in New Mexico? I mean, New Mexico is quite a bit different than Baltimore. Not a lot of water out here. A lot of brown. Um, but I like it. I've adapted. I drink a lot more water. Um, yeah, it's been good. <laughs> Phil's a Minnesota boy. But then he went to the desert and came out here and hasn't left. How come you haven't moved back to the land of all the lakes, buddy? Well, I make a trip back there every summer just so I can get some water skiing in. But, you know, you get stuck out here. You end up with the weather. You love it. You end up skiing in the winter. You end up mountain biking in the summer. And it's, man, it's really easy to get stuck out in New Mexico. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, the two of you were published in a paper in Science and Translational uh, medicine about is that correct? Science and translational medicine. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, 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 right. I usually don't uh, get invited to present and in, in publish in such illustrious journals, so I wasn't there. Uh, but I would like to uh, talk a little bit about that. It was a great paper, and uh, I know you guys worked very hard on it. And it's a topic that's uh, very interesting. And, and I understand that you had to do a lot of things to get to the point where we were ready to publish that. And I know it started with a pandemic. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, we had to start with developing animal models and 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 then developing aerosols. And, and Megan, perhaps you could speak a little bit about what initiated the motivation for that project and what you guys were trying to accomplish. Um, obviously, some of it is obvious, but, but how, how, how did the story go from the beginning? Yeah, well, like you said, it it started with the pandemic. I mean, that was the real motivation for this whole program. Um, we had an ongoing program with Gilead Sciences at the time to develop some other inhaled therapeutics. And so we sort of just shifted gears um, to look at remdesivir. Um, you know, we were faced at the time uh, with a pandemic where the only treatment available uh, is an intravenous infusion of this drug. So that really limits um, the access to that treatment to those that are you know admitted to an ICU or a hospital. So this was um, an effort to sort of expand the the use of remdesivir and other antiviral compounds um, so that we can tackle tackle the pandemic. That's awesome. You know, Phil, you've been working in inhalation now for at least 10 more years, as long as I've known you, at least, since you were just a wee pet lad. Uh, you know, and, and I know that a lot of customers, a lot of folks and a lot of meetings have this dogma of the idea that if you deliver it to the lung, it's better. 
for a respiratory disease. And, and this is certainly an example. And looking at the paper, it had a lot of very interesting data that helped support that argument. Uh, what, what are some of the things that you saw and that, that excited you relative to really just the story of inhalation sciences in general? I think this paper gave us a really good chance to look at some of those metrics. When you have exposure data, and when I say exposure, I mean pharmacokinetics, uh, you've got IV exposure data. And what, what does it actually look like when you move that over to inhalation? And we've been able to build over the 15 years or so that I've been here kind of some of those, some of those data sets. Well, we've got some peptides we've looked at that, you know, if you give an IV dose, Sometimes with an inhalation dose, you'll see very similar systemic exposures. We've got others where if you look at them and you compare an IV dose, sometimes when you go to an inhalation, you'll see a two to a tenfold reduction in your actual dose to see a similar exposure in the lungs. So if you've got something that's got an offsite toxicity, it gives you a great chance to be able to reduce your dose, reduce some of your toxicity, and oftentimes give you better efficacy because you end up targeting the lung right where that disease is. Sometimes I've I, I heard people come and say, well, well it's, it's an obvious ratio, right? It's like 30 to 1 difference if you give it to the lung versus not or whatever. Is there like, is there a rule of thumb? You know, what, if I have a drug, I'm giving it by another route, IV, and I want to do it by inhalation, then what, what's the rule of thumb? Is, is there one? Man, if there was a good rule of thumb, you'd kick me out the door last week because you wouldn't need myself or any of our aerosol <laughs> sciences uh, staff. No, we've seen that vary between a 2x change. We've seen it be as high as a 20x change. A lot of that comes down to physical chemical properties, what you're comparing it to. Was it an IV? Was it an oral? What was the oral bioavailability? What BCS drug class does it fall into? But a lot of that work actually comes back to a lot of things we've done with Megan on this program is we did a really good job of characterizing what those pharmacokinetics were locally and systemically and gave us a chance to start to build that relationship. And I think if you can kind of look at the manuscript, and I, I don't want to nerd out too much on it right now, but if you look at some of those later figures, it does a really great job of showing some of those relationships. Now, I was looking at some of the data. And one of the things, Megan, I was trying to understand is what what did you guys do to try and figure out you know what the model was going to be uh, why you used the certain animal you did and and then uh, picking and looking at the doses that you did to come up with those nice figures because you have these really great figures in there where you're showing efficacy and looking at uh, the uh, amount of viruses there over time looking at these different routes of administration and I think it shows that you you know with a lower dose by inhalation, uh, you're able to get at least equivalent efficacy, I think. How, how did you guys get to that point? I mean, starting from, you know, what, how do I even test this? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And there was a lot of work that led up to this, um, including the development of that uh, NHP model of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Um, you know, there's lots of different animal models uh, to look at. Uh, efficacy of vaccines or antivirals. We chose the non-human primate model because it's, you know, pharmacologically relevant uh, to humans, especially for an inhaled compound. And um, in our initial, you know, model development studies, uh, the monkey had really nice replication kinetics early on in an infection. Um, so it provided a really nice benchmark for evaluating the efficacy of an antiviral, where if that's really your main uh, main outcome of interest. Yeah, and, and, and thinking about the monkey and its utility here, and then just spe- looking at the use of animals in 
research got you know basically came under a microscope for this particular program because obviously it's an it's an area of of, of stress and discussion one we obviously take seriously here um, and but you had to look and understand which models to look at which scenario for that particular research question and those questions have been evolving of, of late um, and, and I think what what now when we look at questions about uh, immunology and things like that for for different types of drug indications would you still use the monkey or would you think about other species or in, in or how, how what are some of your thoughts on 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 different ways to look at the immunology aspects of uh, th- this particular virus and or treatments and things like that. Yeah, no, that's another great question. And, you know, a model is a model. None, none of the models are perfect and some offer um, advantages and disadvantages that can be tailored to each program. Um, the The non-human primate model doesn't it's a subclinical model, so the animals don't really get sick, um, which, you know, you could argue that that's representative of the majority of people who are infected with SARS-CoV-2. Um, but if you really want to delve into some of the immunology and immunopathology, there are other models that are probably better. Um, we have a hamster model that um, does, you know, provide us some evidence of clinical disease and, and lung pathology. Um, it's hard to study immunology in the hamster just due to limited reagents that are available. Um, there's a there's a mouse model that's uh, a transgenic mouse model that uh, expresses the receptor, the human receptor for SARS-CoV-2 that probably is really the best um, to look at, you know, immunologic response to to the infection and also vaccination um, and use that as a benchmark for therapeutic efficacy. That's great. And, and so in going, coming back to Phil, I have a, a question, you know, Megan's only been here about four years and she's already lead author on a, a paper and, you know, it's better than probably anything you've ever done. Uh, how, how does that make you feel about yourself? <laughs> Just you, you, you know, I, I learned long ago when you, when, you know, when you work with a bunch of turkeys, it's hard to soar with eagles. Uh, we were just fortunate enough to find someone like Megan who could try to pick up the slack for the rest of us. No, I mean, yeah, one of the things I, I you know, this the infectious disease has always been obviously been a big deal for us the last couple of years. Uh, you've done a lot of work in different areas of cancer and things like that. Can you think of any uh, other decent examples where we've looked at this and created data sets to address this? question of moving from one route of exposure to inhalation and and how, how we kind of went about that and some parallels that you might have here or not or just other examples where we've seen that because people always come to us with this idea look if you give it to the lung i'm going to have less systemic effects potentially exposure at least uh and potential better efficacy especially for a pulmonary disease um what, what are you seeing some of that in, in other work that you've done yeah, we've been real lucky to do several of those programs in and around lung cancer. Uh, we've been able to take some compounds that are either IV or orally delivered right now and oftentimes have marginal to poor efficacy because at the end of the day, if you've got a tumor in the lung, delivering something orally or delivering something on IV, you're not really targeting that disease. 
Whereas when you put that material right onto the surface of the tumor, right in the lung, we see increased efficacy, usually with a lower dose. There's all kinds of issues and concerns in the development there that we've had to rely on folks like Megan, folks like other uh, veterinary pathologists over the years to help develop those models. Because just like Megan said, all these models have issues with them, but in general, we've been able to see that across all sorts of different diseases, whether it's infectious disease, lung cancer, asthma, COPD, where if we target that disease directly, we're oftentimes able to lower the dose and able to do a better job of treating the disease. So, so, so you've, we've seen this a number of times. And, and are there situations you can think of where we haven't seen it, where we, we see we kind of tried to test that hypothesis and, and, and we didn't test it directly or wasn't a good example or, or something like that? I don't think we've seen it not be the case. We've seen some, we've some, seen some like siRNA molecules where we've seen the reduction be tenfold. When we put it right into the lung to see similar pharmaco- pharmacodynamic models, we've seen pharmacokinetic models consistently sit between that two and tenfold. But I don't think we've seen any that have been worse. And that's been, like I said, across multiple different diseases. And it's been surprisingly consistent across different drug classes, whether it's been a protein, a peptide, an siRNA, a small molecule. So it's been surprisingly consistent. I want to go back to Megan, and and I want to think about a day in the life of Megan during this particular study, as an example, uh, during a time in which many people were working from home and and going through a lot of processes to, you know, kind of adapt to the pandemic, you were in the trenches d- doing the, this and, and work. I know we did over 60 studies during the pandemic r- relative to SARS-CoV-2 and, and, and counting. And I, I want you to kind of illustrate for me with words uh, when you woke up and then when you left and, and what that looked like uh, relatively briefly uh, when you were on one of these studies and, and, and what that day looked like, how many people were there and, 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 and how, how the sausage is made at, at a high level. Yeah, I know. Uh, dur- during all of this and really moving forward, I mean, Loveless, Loveless during the study was my home. So maybe you could say I was working from home. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, there, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes uh, with one of these studies. Uh, you know, if you look at the manuscript, there's some really nice, concise figures that makes it look like it was a very simple study. But to give you an idea, um, you know, just during the study, not even counting for the lead up to it, each day we might have 20, 25 people out in our ABSL 3 facility um, in various shifts um, because it's a, it's an all day event um, and to get you know to run one of these studies was the the efficacy study was 24 animals um, to run one of those studies you really need all hands on deck and this was a you know collaboration um, and involved every aspect of our institution. So it was really nice to see, you know, all the different groups coming together, our aerosol science scientists, our microbiologists, our in-life team, our veterinary team, um, pathologists, um, all contributing towards, you know, creating a successful study. I guess what, one, one thing, one question I'll ask the two of you is, is I'm not going to say next pandemic. Let's just say that 
this experience has brought infectious disease to the forefront for, of science and, and brought science to the forefront of consciousness. Uh, how do we feel that we're better prepared now to look at questions around infectious disease, not just for this particular virus, but others and things like that? And have you seen a, a, an interest or do you expect an increase in interest in infectious disease in general as we hopefully transition from the current situation relatively soon? I'll, I'll ask Phil first and then uh, finish with Megan. Yeah, thanks for that. And I think one of the things Megan spoke about is during the pandemic, it was all hands on deck. We've learned, I think, some really good things about here at Loveless about the PPE, the, the mask that we wore during that time when we were still uncertain about what transmission modalities were for that particular infectious disease during this pandemic. And I think what we'll see, Jake, is we'll see a lot of those things implemented very quickly. And I also think we've set ourselves up, you know, I liken the technology of some of these vaccines that have come out to essentially a hammer looking for a nail. And I think during this pandemic, we figured out the fact that we've got some hammers out there. And when this pandemic popped up, we, we saw the nail and we used it. And I think we've developed some platform technologies and some abilities to rapidly adapt animal models to test things and help us screen through things pretty quickly. And credit to Loveless and a lot of other places that did a lot of this work, the ability to respond quickly. It was no small order to get a lot of the things in line that were needed to do this work as quickly as we did. And the number of different scientific disciplines to do it, I think we've done a better job now of making sure that those are core core capabilities that will withstand and will be maintained so that we're ready to respond if and when it's needed again. How about you, Megan? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think one thing this pandemic really taught us was we need to continue to think outside the box and to think outside the box, we do have to, you know, collaborate across disciplines and be open about data sharing and sharing of methods, sharing of models. And I think, you know, that culture was really fostered by this pandemic. Um, and so I, I hope the scientific community kind of continues um, in that same vein moving forward. Great. Well, with that, I want to thank both of you guys for your time today and for your great work and publication, and hopefully everyone gets a chance to read it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Loveless Biomedical Podcast. 